Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 102, The Great Divide. This week we'll hit the arguably most important set of events in medieval German history, often summarized under the banner of the Investiture Controversy. The Investiture Controversy came about through a confluence of three major strains. The rise in piety in the wake of improving economic conditions, the establishment of the papacy as a power separate and superior to temporal rulers, and thirdly, the opposition of the German magnates against the centralizing tendency of the emperors, led by the Saxons. And it's the latter part of this episode focuses on. If you are interested in the whole story, episodes 30 to 42 give you an overarching story. I actually listened to them again, and I'm a little bit proud of what I've done there. But that's enough self-aggrandization. Let's find out what happened with the Saxons. But before we start, just let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Justin K., Margaret G., Ragnild S., and Regina, who've already signed up. We pick up the story where we left it in episode 100. The Saxon leaders had surrendered to Henry IV on October 25, 1075. Henry's soldiers were raiding and murdering up and down the duchy in revenge for the destruction of the Harzburg and the desecration of the imperial graves. After the battle on the Unstrut, Henry IV had the opportunity to show mercy and reach a lasting arrangement with the Saxons, but Henry did not look for reconciliation. He wanted to continue his policy of territorial consolidation through the construction of castles. Fun fact, his great enemy Otto of Nordheim had swapped sides and was now his administrator in Saxony, rebuilding the castles he had railed against just two years earlier. That meant the Saxons remained hostile and the other dukes, counts, bishops remained concerned about the king's authoritarian streak. And that hostility came to bear as the conflict between Henry IV and Pope Gregory VII exploded into the excommunication and deposition of the king. Just as a recap, Gregory and Henry had got into a disagreement over who could appoint the Archbishop of Milan, which resulted in two rival archbishops. This then escalated into a letter Henry wrote to Gregory calling him Hildebrand, not Pope, but false monk, and where he called for him to be replaced. Gregory VII responded by first excommunicating and then deposing him. Henry was now dependent upon the support of his bishops and magnates, support he found he did not have. At an assembly at Trebur, the German magnates ordered him deposed unless he can get released from the ban within a year and a day. And that led to that famous crossing of the Alps in midwinter and the penance Henry IV did before Gregory VII at the castle of Canossa. While this is all going on, Saxony is back in open rebellion. Magnates who had fled into exile returned and the bishops released those who had been taken prisoner. Otto von Nordheim changed sides again and handed the Harzburg over to the rebels, wiping out most of the imperial gains. Though Henry gets released from the ban in February 1077, in March 1077 the princes declare Henry IV formally deposed at the assembly of Forchheim. It is unclear who took part in this assembly, but we do know that Otto von Nordheim was an important voice. And at this diet, two decisions are taken. The first one was the election of Rudolf von Rheinfelden, the Duke of Swabia, as anti-king. Even more important than that was the decision to change the constitution of the empire. 
The new king conceded that royal powers should belong to no one by hereditary right, as was formerly the custom, and further that the son of the king, even if he was extremely worthy, should succeed as king rather by spontaneous election than by line of succession, and that the people should have it in their power to make king whoever they wished. With that, the empire had become an elective monarchy. Now, in the civil war that follows, the support of Henry IV sits mainly in the south, in his own lands around Worms and Speyer, Bavaria, parts of Swabia and along the Main River. Supporters of Rudolf of Rheinfelden are his Swabian vassals, the House of Wealth, also very strong in Swabia, and the Saxons, even though the anti-king himself wasn't one. The two armies were equally matched. Henry may have had more resources, but Rheinfelden had the greatest general of his time, Otto von Nordheim. The first two major battles followed a simple pattern, where Henry would have the upper hand for the first half until Otto von Nordheim appeared out of left field and pushed him back. In the first of these battles, Henry and Rudolf both fled the field. In the second, it was just Henry who fled, but the rebels had sustained two severe losses to pursue the royal army. Despite the military success, Rheinfelden never managed to expand the opposition-controlled territory much beyond Saxony and his exclave in Swabia. In between, negotiations between the parties and with the Pope continued, but without any conclusions. On October 15, 1080, the two armies met again on the Elster River in Saxony, not far from Leipzig. Henry had been retreating from a pursuing Saxon army. He was outnumbered and tried to combine forces with his ally, the Duke of Bohemia. His progress came to a halt when he reached the swollen Elster River that he could not cross. He pitched up camp and prepared for battle. That evening he drew up another donation for the Cathedral of Speyer, the shrine to the Imperial Salian family, seeking the help of the Virgin Mary. It had become a habit of Henry's to make generous donations to the Church of Speyer at pivotal moments of his career, and as we have already seen, there is no shortage of such moments, making the Cathedral Church extremely rich. All that money went into making this already enormous church even bigger. And here is how the historian I.S. Robinson describes the battle, quote, at daybreak on October 15, Henry drew up his army west of the Elster, along a stream called the Grune, where the marshy ground would impede the enemy's approach. His forces included the vassals of the 16 prelates who accompanied him, Swabians under the command of their duke, Bavarians under the command of Count Rapato IV of Cam, and Lothringians, commanded by Count Henry of Lach, future Count Palatinate of Lothringia. There were no Bohemians in the royal army. Henry had failed to make contact with Ratislav's forces. When the Saxons arrived on the opposite bank of the Grune, they were exhausted by the rapid march and without most of their foot soldiers, who could not keep up. As they approached the royal lines, the bishops in the Saxon army ordered the clergy to sing Psalm 82, traditionally regarded as a prayer against the enemies of God's church. The two armies picked their way through the marches on opposite banks of the Grune until they reached a safe crossing whereupon they immediately engaged in close combat. The royal army fought so fiercely that some Saxon knights fled, and the rumour that the whole Saxon army was in retreat was so far believed that the clergy in the royal camp began to sing the Te Deum. They were interrupted by the arrival of men bearing the body of Count Rapato IV of Cam. This sudden reversal was the work of the resourceful Otto von Nordheim. The Saxon knights fled and royal forces pursued them, 
Otto rallied the foot soldiers and forced back the pursuers. Returning to the battlefield, Otto found the royal contingent, commanded by Henry von Lach, beginning triumphantly singing the chant of Kyrie Eleison. Once more, a premature celebration of the royal army were cut short, and the foot soldiers of Otto von Nordheim sent the enemy fleeing across the Elster. End quote. But this victory did cost the rebels dearly. When Otto von Nordheim returned to the camp, he found his king mortally wounded, his right hand cut off. Rudolf of Rheinfelden died that night or in the morning of the next day. That was a major blow to the opposition. The manner of Rudolf's death, losing the hand he had sworn allegiance to Henry IV, seriously undermined the standing of the opposition as the good ones in the conflict. For once, Henry IV is winning the propaganda war. The other issue was that the opposition was divided. The two major protagonists after Rudolf were Ralph IV and Otto von Nordheim. These two men hated each other ever since Henry IV had replaced Otto as Duke of Bavaria with Ralph IV. Both men had drawn pledges from Rudolf that in case of victory they would get the Duchy of Bavaria. Under these circumstances electing a successor for Rudolf as anti-king proved difficult. Henry IV tried to use the situation by making a peace offering to the Saxons. They could elevate his son Conrad as Saxon king, who would reign as their ruler before finally succeeding his father as emperor. That would bring back the old Ottonian order where the emperor was a Saxon. Otto von Nordheim's response was, I have too often seen a bad calf begotten by a bad steer, so I desire neither the father nor the son. The opposition kept debating about who to elect, not helped by Gregory VII urging them to wait with the election until he could come down to Germany, which he never did. The two parties agreed a short-lived truce until June 1081. After that, fighting resumed and an assembly of opposition leaders elected Hermann von Salm, a previously unknown count, to be king. Gregory did not endorse this new king and his name was never mentioned by the Pope. More importantly, Otto von Nordheim took a sweet time acknowledging that he would never be king and finally recognized Hermann. But somehow the momentum was gone from the rebellion. Henry IV could leave the management of the conflict to his closest ally and son-in-law, Frederick of Hohenstaufen. Frederick kept things ticking over whilst focusing on consolidating both the royal territories as well as his own. This low-key conflict continued until Henry IV returned to Germany in 1084. In the meantime, Henry had taken Rome and managed to organize some sort of imperial coronation. Sure, Gregory VII had retaken the Holy City with the help of the Normans, but they had made such a mess, the Pope had to leave again and died in Salerno that same year. So basically, Henry IV is back in the saddle. All that left was mopping up the opposition. That opposition had now changed quite fundamentally. Otto von Nordheim had died in 1083. With him, the Saxons had lost their unifying figurehead. Amongst the temporal leaders of the Saxons, we now have several. There is Magnus, the Duke of Saxony, who does play a role, but is often lukewarm in his support of the uprising, and subsequently does not have the leadership role his title suggests. Then we have the sons of Otto von Nordheim, of which there are at least three, Siegfried, Kuno and Henry the Fat. The House of Wettin is also on the rise, and their main protagonist is Henry of Eilenburg. But the most prominent was Egbert II, Markgraf of Meissen, and he needs a bit more of an introduction. 
Now, last time we talked about the Margraviate of Meissen, the man in charge was the ruthless Eckhard II, who died childless. The county then went to the Counts of Weimar, who only lasted about 20 years before it went to Egbert I, Count of Brunswick. Now, that rings a bell, I guess. Brunswick will become the de facto capital of duchy once Henry the Lion from the House of Wealth takes over. For now, it is just one of several important counties and seat of the Brunones, one of these ancient Saxon families named after their earliest ancestor, in this case, a man called Bruno. They are linked to the imperial family and, as it happens, are the only family the Salians have in Saxony. Egbert's father, Egbert I, had gained his one significant entry into the history books when he rescued little Henry IV from drowning at the coup of Kaiserswert. That explains why Meissen is given to Egbert I when the previous Markgraf died without male descendants in 1067. Now this Egbert didn't last long and in 1068 his son Egbert II, the one we want to talk about, takes over. Egbert II should be a contented little count. Not only did he hold the Margraviate of Meissen, he was also Count of Brunswick and Count of Frisia, plus he had inherited the lands of the Counts of Weimar, making him the most significant magnate in Saxony, now that Otto von Nordheim's possessions have been split up between his sons. But he is not a contented little count, nor is he loyal to the imperial house that had bestowed all that wealth on his family. He joined the Saxon uprising in 1073 and fought alongside Otto von Nordheim. And when their case was lost in October 1075, Egbert's little empire collapses into dust. Henry IV is so enraged by Egbert's betrayal, he issues an order saying that, by the law of nations, the enemies of the king are outlaws and should be disinherited of all their possessions, and that Egbert shall have no part in the kingdom. Meissen goes to Henry's ally, the Duke of Bohemia, Frisia to the Bishop of Utrecht, and Brunswick, well, I don't know. What we do know is that the year after, the rebellion resumes and Egbert is back. He regains Meissen and Brunswick and puts his weight behind Rudolf von Rheinfelden. But after his previous experience, he likes to keep an open mind and open communication channels with the other side so as to be ready to swap sides should things turn unpleasant. They did not get too unpleasant for Egbert II until 1085, which is why he stuck with the Saxons. The other thing that has changed was the relationship between the Saxons and the church reformers. So far the Saxons and the popes had shared an enemy, but not much else. You may remember that one of the reasons the Saxons were so disenchanted with the emperors was their sponsorship of the church. And they did not feel that Gregory VII had been wholeheartedly on their side. It took him three years to endorse the anti-king Rudolf of Rheinfelden, and he never supported the current official head of the whole enterprise, Hermann von Salm. Ah, sorry, and I nearly forgot him. He is still about, but technically their king, but that does not really matter. By 1084, when Henry IV had returned triumphantly from his Italian adventures, the Saxons and the church moved closer together. The main church leaders are Hartwig, Archbishop of Magdeburg, Udo, Bishop of Hildesheim, and Burkhardt, Bishop of Halberstadt. The bishops were much less interested in the rights and privileges of the Saxons, but in church reform and the supremacy of the papacy. But needs must, and the bishops stood together with the temporal lords throughout the 1070s and early 1080s. And then there is another leg to all this, the Swabians. So when Rudolf von Rheinfelden became anti-king, his vassals in the south joined the Saxon uprising, as did the House of Wealth. They were supposed to be joint partners in the endeavour, but the two groups had again little in common apart from the animosity towards Henry IV. 
the military benefit of the alliance with the Swabians was almost entirely offset by the complexity of coordinating across disconnected territories and the inability to agree on a truly powerful leader as anti-king. And another thing has changed. When Henry returns, he's no longer the teenager slash young adult of his earlier career. He had grown up and become more realistic in his ambitions. So rather than going in like a wrecking ball, he now aims to break up the opposition and reconcile with former foes. He tries this with the bishops by inviting them to have a theological discussion about the legality of his excommunication. This does not get very far since the situation is ultimately irresolvable to argument. Henry had created not only an anti-pope but also anti-archbishops and anti-bishops, all of which were trading excommunications and bans. There were synods on either side where either all the Gregorian bishops were summarily deposed or all Henrician bishops were told to go packing. Where he had more success was in trying to break up the phalanx of territorial lords. These guys did not care that much about the Pope and Church reform, they just wanted to be free from authoritarian rule. But talking to the other side was risky. At an assembly of Saxon magnates, the Bishop Udo of Hildesheim, his brother, and the Count Dietrich of Kattenburg were accused of having open negotiations with Henry. The three men admitted freely that they had spoken to the Emperor, but insisted they had no intention of surrendering. They were accused of betrayal and a quarrel broke out at the end of which Count Dietrich lay dead and the bishop and his brother had to run to Henry IV, where they remained. And Count Dietrich was not just anyone, he was a rebel since 1073, a member of the great old Saxon family and married to Eckbert of Meissen's sister. His potential betrayal caused a lot of concern and with good reason. What added to the worries was that Bishop Udo of Hildesheim was now definitely supporting Henry. His job had become to recruit more defectors. And Henry promised not just preferment, but also that he would swear an oath that, if the Saxons permitted him to exercise kingship in the same way as his father, he would never infringe on the rights that they had enjoyed since the time of their conqueror, Charles the Great. He basically offers the Saxons what they wanted all along. That did work for the temporal lords, but there was nothing in it for the bishops. So the bishops had to hold things together by force, and if necessarily by purges. In 1185, Friedrich of Putillendorf, a nephew of our old friend Arabert, Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen, was killed by the Count Louis the Leaper of Thuringia, again upon suspicion of being a defector from the Saxon cause. This callous act brought Louis the victim's job, making him Count Palatinate of Saxony. And Louis is a bit of a mystery man, there are many stories about him that are a bit difficult to verify. He got his nickname when, after he was caught, he escaped from prison by jumping into the Saale River from one of the towers of the castle of Giebichenstein. He was also the founder of the Landgraviate of Thuringia, a princely territory that kept growing and growing in the centuries that followed, not always by playing cricket. But by July 1185 the bishop's poker play seems to have ended. Too many of the Saxon lords wanted to bring the conflict to an end on acceptable terms. Henry IV was able to take a large army to Magdeburg without any resistance. He was received with all the honours in the cathedral. The Saxon nobles even assembled to depose their useless anti-king Hermann von Salm. Henry then replaced all the opposition bishops with loyal candidates, which was fine, and then he replaced several key administrative positions. All done, Henry IV dismissed his army, and settled in to enjoy the lasting peace he had achieved. His lasting peace 
lasted barely two months, or a truss, as we call it in England. Our friend Egbert II, who had sworn fealty again, was clearly unhappy with the outcome. He had assumed that he would retain the Margraviate of Meissen under the new regime. But that was not so. Henry IV maintained his decision to oust him and gave the Margraviate to the Duke of Bohemia. So he and others ganged up, sent the new bishops back home and called back Hartwig of Magdeburg and Burkhard of Halberstadt. Even Hermann von Salm returned and celebrated Christmas in the same halls the Emperor had set in judgment only months earlier. Henry IV is back to square one. The following year, the Emperor tried again. He mustered a large army and, after condemning Eckbart II again, this time as an enemy of the Empire, he set off for Magdeburg. But after a few weeks of burning and pillaging, he turned round, goes back home. Why is not quite clear, but some sort of treachery, this time in the Imperial ranks, thwarted the campaign. Now it's the Saxons' turn. They revived their old alliance with the Swabians around Welf IV and agreed to jointly take Würzburg, thereby creating a land bridge between the two territories. Five weeks into the siege, an imperial army appears. The rebels march out to the Pleichfeld to fight. The southerners are full of fervor for the holy war. They fight against the sinful, deposed ruler. They put up high crosses on wagons, flying red banners. Contraption that looks a lot like an Italian carroccio. And whether it was the crosses, the religious fervor, or straightforward military skill, the Imperials are defeated. Not just defeated, but the battle has turned into a rout. Eyewitnesses talk about nine huge piles of corpses of the defeated army against just 30 men lost amongst the rebels. But the Saxons and Swabians did not make much out of their success. They leave a garrison in Würzburg and reinstall their archbishop. But a year later, Henry IV is back. Würzburg returned to imperial control and the connection between the two rebel strongholds is broken. The divisions in the rebel camp keep deepening. At some point the Swabians negotiate with Henry directly without checking in with their partners. Then we hear that Duke Magnus Billung, after all nominally the leader of the duchy, had joined Henry IV at the coronation ceremonies of his son. So in 1187 Henry IV goes again. Same procedure as last time. He raises an army and marches into Saxony. This time Egbert II goes to the imperial tent, surrenders and swears fealty until the end of time, providing he is recognized as Markgraf of Meissen. Henry IV agrees, which was a difficult thing to do, because Henry's most significant ally in the war with the Saxons was the Duke of Bohemia, Ratislav. He was so dependent on him, he had to elevate him to be King of Bohemia, something Empress had refused to do ever since Boleslav the Brave had claimed the crown. The other thing he had promised Ratislav was the Margraviate of Meissen. He now had to go back on that promise. That was a high price to pay for the loyalty of Egbert II, but surely worth it. Henry dismisses his army and sends Egbert up to Magdeburg to get everything ready for his joyous entry into the city. Ah, Henry IV finds out that Egbert's idea of until the end of time meant barely 24 hours. Once he is in Magdeburg, Egbert sends envoys to Henry saying that but actually, upon reflection, he is still bound by oath to his compatriots and so sorry, no can do. What happened in the meantime is that the two bishops, Hartwig of Magdeburg and Burkhard of Halberstadt, had handed over not only all the land and money they could spare, but promised him to make him king of the Saxons. That was the end of the campaign. But hey, there's always another year. The 1188 campaign was, however, different. Different insofar as it did not really happen. 
The offer of kingship to Egbert II was what brought the rebellion to collapse. The Saxon leaders knew Egbert and they knew that he was not to be trusted. So Egbert was not proposed as king of the Saxons. Egbert claimed that Burkhard and Hartwig had tricked him. So he rejoined the camp of Henry IV and swore again eternal fealty. And then he attacked the diocese of Halberstadt. Burkhard met up with Hartwig and one of Otto von Nordheim's sons in Goslar. And there, somehow, the citizens of Goslar and the Halberstadt ministerialists get into a fight, at the end of which the Gregorian party is another bishop short. All fingers point at Egbert II. With Burkhardt gone, the other Saxons throw in the towel. The sons of Otto von Nordheim bend the knee, as does Henry of Eilenburg, the head of the House of Wettin. In return, Henry confirms all ancient rights and privileges, whatever these are. Henry IV then marries Eupraxia, the widow of the Count of Stade, another important Saxon family. Hartwig of Magdeburg is amongst the first to submit, promising to bring along the other Gregorian bishops, the ones of Naumburg and Merseburg. Hartwig is then immediately restored to his seat as the one and only archbishop. Not just that, he's made the emperor's representative in Saxony and Thuringia, a sort of viceroy. That arrangement was the smart move here. By creating a layer between the emperor and the Saxon nobles in the form of a man the Saxons knew and trusted, they could be assured that there would be no more imperial overreach. Hartwig was the ideal man for the role. He kept it until 1104, constantly loyal to the emperor and keeping his oath to leave the Saxons well alone. That would be the end of the story, was it not? For the eternal troublemaker Egbert. Having rebelled twice and reconciled twice, he thought all good things are three, and whilst all the other Saxons made peace, he got going again. And though he was pretty much on his own, he won a battle at Gleichen, where he again routed an imperial army. He captured the Bishop of Hildesheim, the defector of 1185, and only let him live after he had handed over all his diocese. But in the end, he could not sustain it. In 1189, Henry of Eilenburg caught up and defeated him. Egbert got away and hid in a mill on the river Selke. Their soldiers in the pay of Abbess Adelaide of Quedlinburg found him and killed him. That was the end of Egbert II of Meissen and also the end of the Saxon Wars. The chroniclers counted 15 incursions of the emperor into Saxony. This was the last. Henry IV will never again set foot in the duchy. The Salians and their heirs will never again rule directly in Saxony. We have gone from unease to rift to separation. Saxony will now look to its own leader who sits between them and the emperor. And the question who that will be hangs on the inheritance of Egbert II. Since Egbert had no male offspring, the Margraviate of Meissen became a returned fief. That was given to Henry of Eilenburg, whose family, the Wittins, held it until 1918. Egbert's personal wealth, including Brunswick and Frisia, went to his daughter Gertrude, who had married Henry the Fat, the son of Otto of Nordheim. Henry the Fat takes over the role of Egbert as the most important and richest noble in Saxony until his death in 1101. Henry's daughter Richenza inherited most of these lands, and when she married Lothar von Supplinburg, she provided him with what he needed to rise first to Duke of Saxony and later to Emperor. But that is a tale for another time, for next week to be precise. I hope 
you will join us again. And you won't believe it when you hear it, but I'm still sailing somewhere in the Atlantic or maybe just got into the Med. So if you want to follow along, you can do so on the website, an app called Marine Traffic. Search for sailing vessel Purple Rain, going under French flag. What this journey means, apart from working like a dervish to get through enough episodes recorded to cover the time, it also means that my marketing efforts trickle down to zero. Hence, I would hugely appreciate if you were to help promote the show. Why not send a link to the history of the Germans to a friend or family member who might be interested? Write a comment on one of my older posts, which tends to revive them, or even write your own post on social media. That would be massively appreciated, as would obviously signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>